Joining us now <coughs> is a good friend of mine who's also teaches sports business down at Georgetown University, and that is my friend Marty Conway. Marty, how are you? Hey, Stan. Good to be with you on the bat around. Is it fair to call you a professor? <laughs> you can call me whatever you want. All right. I, I've got a wide range of uh, of handles, so anything goes. All right. Hey, the first thing I wanted to ask you, because I, I like to have you on to talk about different aspects of sports business, but on the bat around, we'll try and confine it to baseball business. Yesterday, yep. Major League Baseball did something uh, kind of interesting. They, they had all their teams... Uh, the players were outfitted with hats that said SD, yep. which stands for Stoneman Douglas, uh, the high school where the tragedy took place last Friday. What was your take? Is that a, a good position to take for Major League Baseball, sort of from a, a branding of what they are and sort of their social consciousness as an industry? Yeah, I well, first of all, I think it started, if I'm not mistaken, I think one of the clubs was going to do it. I don't remember if it was the Florida club or, or somebody. Uh, one I, of think it was the Mar- I, think I think it was the Marlins were going to do it. Yeah. yeah, I think it was the Marlins, and that would have made a lot of sense because there's a lot of local residents there uh, between that club and the location of where the high school tragedy occurred. But then I think Major League Baseball took a look at this and said, hey, you know, what? why should we just, you know, we've got – certain amount of clubs in Florida, spring training and all that. Um, and so I think they saw this as an overall opportunity, and I think rightly so, which, as you mentioned, the social consciousness. But the the other thing that it shows from a baseball standpoint is rapid response. And if you know the one thing about baseball is they have had a label, for better or for worse, yeah. of, of really not being contemporary, right, or not, not, like, not like the NBA or some of the other leagues in that regard. And so I think in this respect, it shows that there's a real resonance and ability to react swiftly to something that's in the national consciousness. And uh, so I think all in all, it's a good thing. I don't think there's any downside to all the clubs doing it, whether they're in Florida or just there for spring training. You know, it was what I found really interesting is when I read the piece about the Marlins doing it, it, it made it sound like baseball wasn't going to relax the rule that the players could play play with the hats just that yeah. they would wear them in batting practice and then take yeah. them off. And then it was quite stunning to see all the teams having the hats on during the games. Yeah, and that's another thing, that baseball had a real strict set of rules about the ability to do that on their own in, yep. in pregame, but then during the game. And again, I think it's a good thing for baseball to just kind of walk those rules back like that and, and be more socially responsible. Uh, talk a little bit about this commissioner, what you've observed from him. Look, there's no question that Bud Selig took the game of baseball from, uh, I won't call it the precipice, but his his tenure as commissioner, the, the league moved into a different stratosphere. But talk about the differences of these two men, Bud Selig and Rob Manfred, the current commissioner. I think you're absolutely right. I think Bud really kept the game uh, alive in that respect because it was, you know, I was with the Rangers when we canceled the World Series, and that has to be the low point of baseball other than the Black Sox scandal, I would guess. Yep. Um, And he was able to revive that and and do things because he came from the owner's ranks. I think they trusted him on, on many issues. I think for Rob Manford, who, by the way, was elected commissioner in Baltimore, if you remember. I remember. Uh, we were at there. the meeting together, yeah. Yeah. Um, Rob is much more aware, and I think the key for Rob Manford that you see is 
who he has surrounded himself with, and that is he has surrounded himself with many younger executives, many executives who are much more certainly aware around digital and social media. And so I think it's as much as Rob's own personality, but I also think it's who he has surrounded himself with in his senior executive roles. And I think he relies upon those people to be aware much more of what where the public is, where consumer interests are, and those sorts of things. So Bud was Bud was separated from that. He didn't do email. He was not yeah. on the web. What you know, he wasn't on social media for sure. And so Rob is much has a much greater influence in a in a good way, I think, for baseball going forward. We're talking with Marty Conway, my friend and also a professor of sports business over at Georgetown University, and we're talking about the business of baseball. Marty, this new commissioner has seemed self, uh, not self-obsessed, obsessed with this pace of play issue. And it yeah. seems like the blowback he gets from everybody is, oh, come on, the fans really don't care if a game is 252 or 301. And I don't think that's the issue either. But I, I do agree that the game needs to be moved along a little bit. I wasn't personally in favor of the clock, uh, but your take on on his obsession with time of game or pace of play? Yeah, I, I think this is something that is front and center in the media, and, and so it's a media narrative. I think you're right. The average fan sitting there doesn't know the difference between a game at two hours and fifty minutes, or a game at two fifty nine, or anything of the anything of the sort. But I think that the day-to-day folks who cover it and, and, and talk about this a lot have seen it drag on over time and go from an average of 238 to 240 to 250. And so that becomes a narrative. And I think Rob has been right to go right at this narrative in every possible way mm-hmm. that he can. And I, I agree with you. I don't think a pitch clock is necessarily what the answer is, but I think he has used that as leverage to get as a good negotiator that he that he is in terms of his legal background to get some of these other uh, pace of play initiatives in that are largely now run by the umpires in terms of running the game. And so it's really getting people to be more responsible, to be the umpires to be more responsible, the players to be more responsible, the managers, the catchers, et cetera, to be more responsible into moving games along because that's where they've gotten hurt is these, unsupervised areas, mound visits, and other things of yep. the sort that have gotten to be too frequent and actually take time out of the game uh, as opposed to keeping it moving. I, I actually noticed that they did kind of put their money where their mouth is, that the the, the commercial breaks are going to be shortened, albeit, you know, in a minor way. I think 25 seconds during the regular season, that's still significant potential revenue that probably will get used in different ways. I mean, uh, uh, but but they are trying to move the game along faster from that point of view. Yeah, you and I have talked about this because I think the one area where they could absolutely do this, if I were to disagree with with Rob Manfred in this approach, and that is, as I mentioned earlier, they seem to have gone into areas that now require somebody else to supervise this, the umpires to do this and the other thing. Right. One of the areas that they clearly could have taken time out is in the between innings between the top and the bottom. Right. Um, you watch games, I watch games, you see that by the fifth and sixth inning, a lot of those commercials are the same commercials that ran in the first, second, and third inning. 
the amount of time that they need between innings, I don't think is a firm number. I think mm-hmm. maybe that's 90 seconds, 60 seconds, whatever it is, to run two or three commercials and to get back. Now they're at 2.05, which is going to be the regular timing. What they're saying is at, with 25 seconds to go in that 2.05 period, they want the umpires to start that initiative, to signal to the pitcher one warm-up toss to go. They want that pitcher to throw his final warm-up toss with 20 seconds left on the clock, and they want the batter to start approaching the plate, and they want to be ready to go at 2.05. Now, we'll see. We'll see. I think that's I think that's a challenge, and I think had they cut some time out in between the innings, even if it's 30 seconds, yeah. that's four minutes a game. Yeah, no question about, about it. it. that way over a nine-inning game. Uh, you know, it is interesting because there's so many ways to skin that commercial cat, and you're exactly right. The repetitiveness of commercials has always staggered me that a company in November or December when they're cutting their commercials won't think, you know, boy, this is going to be on Oriole Baseball 162 times. Let's do three different versions of this so fans aren't tuned out to it uh, by May the 1st. But I And there's a lot of different ways – visual imaging on the screen, um, throwing it in uh, this portion of the game is brought to you by Coors Light. You know, there's a million different ways to do those kind of things. Including not even going away. You remember the days of Baltimore and HTS when they didn't have commercials to run, so they stayed at the ballpark in between the the last out and the first out, and they would do things on a live basis. So I think the idea that there's – three or four 30-second commercials is is a throwback to the past, which I really don't think applies much anymore. You, you've got companies now doing six-second commercials mm-hmm. in the Olympics and the Super Bowl, and I think it's a matter of time before that comes to baseball, and, and it would be a good thing. Uh, one of the things uh, the commissioner did was he talked tough about this. He was going to implement. He had the right to implement. At the very end, though, the negotiations really turned sour and I thought the commissioner was smart given the market this year and the blowback they were getting on the slow free agent market to back off a little bit and not implement the clock this year. Uh, I think we've bought a year respite from that. But I wanted to ask you about the overall pace of this offseason from a business standpoint uh, is this something that just all the clubs have gotten wise at one time? Uh, no, I don't think so. I, I think it really is the the notion that look at free agency. We're now forty over forty years old in terms yeah. of you know free agency. We shouldn't be thinking of free agency like nineteen seventy six or nineteen eighty six. We should really be thinking about free agency in in its fortieth year. And then in parallel, what's happened is the rise of analytics and other things along the way, which essentially says that my risk reward on taking uh, a chance on, say, for example, somebody like an, uh, you know, a, a, a chance Cisco or somebody else versus signing a Jonathan Lucroy, whatever, all of those numbers are there now. And I think general managers and farm directors and all that have looked at this and said, the risk reward here on these players, especially over the age of 30, now is something that just doesn't make a great deal of sense for me to do. Mm-hmm. So I think that free agency has changed in that you're still going to have some of the top players get you know, the outsized contracts, but I think players who are 29, 30, and 31 are going to have to rethink their plan. And this is what you and I talked about with Andrew Kashner, which is 
him taking this deferral of money, I'm, I'm sure in one regard the, the Orioles wanted some deferral on it, but maybe Andrew Kashner did too because right. in two or three years around this time of the year, if he doesn't have a job in spring training. He's still he's got a million paid, dollars coming in. Yep. He's going to get $500,000 a month for three months, January, February, March, and maybe that's what he'll need to run his life at that point. No, no question. Very, very, very interesting uh, about that. Now, the 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 larger issue behind some of the, the, the uh, there hasn't been this kind of back and forth publicly since back in the days when Richard Ravitch was handling the negotiations, the labor negotiations for the players versus either Marvin Miller or uh, Donald Fear. Um, I think we've all watched enough sports and the negotiations to know that if the top two guys don't develop a relationship. Uh, their their each individual interest that they have can suffer, and I would maintain that the Manfred Tony Clark relationship appears to be almost non-existent, and almost like Manfred doesn't take him very seriously. Uh, how much jeopardy does that put the the labor piece in? Um, I, I think there's something to that. <clears throat> I think that um, certainly, I think Rob had a better relationship with Michael Weiner before he passed away a couple of years ago, right? I think because yep. they, they had negotiated, they've been the principal negotiators, you know, for 10 or 15 years for their respective heads of their organizations. So I think that relationship was in place. I think Tony Clark being a former player, um, I, you know, these relationships are on both sides. I mean, if one, if both would like to have the relationship, it can be there. But I think perhaps the Tony Clark being a former player may bring that player's perspective that which is you know you know they've seen that and actually perhaps some of the basic agreement things that they agreed to haven't worked out mm-hmm. to their benefit like they thought they were going to and so i think that's what you're seeing play out here which is that each side has looked at this and said maybe we're not especially the players maybe we're not not necessarily getting what we thought we would right and 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 this is a reaction to that perhaps i think there's something to that because certainly free agency hasn't worked out for them in this collect in this new collective bargaining agreement like it did in the past is there any historical precedent when things are not going well for one side for the other side to say boy this isn't working out that well for you Let's reopen this and come up with something that'll make you happier for the the larger picture. Or is it sort of Peter Angelos's version of once you've signed a contract, that yeah. contract is in place. There's no discussion. Well, I think in this case, unlike the NBA and the, and the NFL, who have had some where certain sides have had an option to yep. either stop it or continue, this one is a is a long term deal until the early twenties. And I think everybody was happy with that because it coincided with network TV deals mm-hmm. and other things. Um, so I, I do not think there's any ability to do it, nor do I think either side, excuse me, would either really benefit from it mm-hmm. because I don't think the economics of the game are going to change until the next set of national contracts and other things come along that could inject more money in, and then they can have a discussion about who gets what share of that incremental money should there be any incremental money along the way. All right, fair enough. We've got a few more minutes. I thought we'd move locally here. You know, uh, Peter Angelos has now owned the Baltimore Orioles since uh, late summer 1993 when he purchased the club with a group of investors uh, out of bankruptcy. 
That's seven and by my math, seven and 17 is 24 years. This is, I believe, the 25th year of his ownership. Is that about right? I think that's about right. Yeah. And when I looked at this, you know, prior to coming on, it it surprised me, actually, that he now would become the longest-running owner of the club. We all, I think all of us have been around a while, think of, you know, Jerry Huffberger and his group as yeah. being the long-running owners. And should, should Mr. Angelos continue to own this year and beyond, he'd be the longest-running, you know, owner in the history of the franchise. So, so it's interesting, you know, without being critical of Mr. Angelos, um, you know, they, they got a terrible break that they had nothing to do with, with the Freddie Gray um, situation and the riots that took place and the fear that that engendered in so much of their audience. Uh, but if you had, if you had a, a couple days where magically you were put in charge of a new ownership group or you were called by Peter and said, "Hey, what do I what do I need to 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 move the 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 future uh, of baseball in Baltimore from a business standpoint? Do you have a couple things that you could cite that they don't do particularly well? They're they're too old fashioned in. Well, I think there's a couple of stones they could roll out of the way that I think would help them. And again, from from the philanthropy standpoint, the community relations, I think they do an excellent job of mm-hmm. staying connected to the community and the money that they raise." certainly benefits the community in many ways. I think but on the media and digital side, they haven't moved nearly fast enough um, to be contemporary with consumers. Number one, Masson, vis-a-vis the Nationals and the Orioles, are the only two Major League Baseball teams remaining whose games on their regional sports network, Masson, are not available for streaming to consumers. So if I'm a if I'm a customer and I have Masson on my cable system, the only way that I can watch the games is to sit down in front of my television and, and consume it that way. All the other teams in Major League Baseball with their regional sports networks have gone to a system through Major League Baseball where in addition to watching it in your home, you can take it with you on the go, you could see it on your tablet, you could see it on your phone as long as you were logged in through your you know, Comcast or whatever your right. provider is. That hurts. That that hurts. I mean, we've seen. Where where, really where does that where does that hurt in just pure numbers of viewers? Yeah, I think that hurts you in terms of numbers of viewers. I think it kills you with younger people mm-hmm. who don't even have cable, um, who might think about seeing this in some other way, and it suggests suddenly. You know, I think again we've seen how many sports now the Olympics are going on and others. Mm-hmm. The streaming numbers are just the Super Bowl all the major events like that, this is the way that people are increasingly consuming their sport. And so if you're not seeing it, you're not seeing the promotion, you're not seeing the games, the players, and those sorts of things. So all the other teams have gone to that, and because of the longstanding now issue between the club and Major League Baseball over the Masson dispute, right. this has harmed that ability to get that done for sure, and there's not a chance that this will happen until that dispute comes to fun, comes to some final settlement because the team would actually have to pay for this. They'd have to pay baseball. They'd have to pay some other people right. for this to happen. And that's not that's not going to happen until all parties have agreed here on something. Anything else that that stands out to you as something that could be changed? And then I think, as I mentioned earlier, in addition to the media, it's the it's the digital, it's the ticketing. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you get tickets. I know many other people that get season tickets. 
you can get some of your tickets on your phone, depending if you buy a game day ticket or you do whatever, but still, by and large, most of the ticketing is done through hard tickets. Um, again, many of the other clubs have partnered with systems that allow you to do a couple things to distribute your tickets digitally. If you're in a syndicate of people who have tickets, it allows you to put additional money on your account to buy, you know, food and beverage along the way. So the combination of media and, and ticketing, digital ticketing, again, goes to the point where younger people who are accustomed to living with ordering an Uber, or spending money by Venmo, mm-hmm. et cetera, they just don't have that capability. And so it, it, it doesn't feel contemporary. And I think that has a lot to do with where they've gone in terms of lower season ticket numbers, putting tickets on sale late, not till January. I think that all contributes to some of the challenges that they face and you've seen the attendance slide, even though the team has been generally competitive mm-hmm. in the last three to five years. Hey, Marty, I know I said we'd stick to baseball, the business of baseball. Before we go, uh, I'm not aware, I'm not sure you knew this or not, but last sat and there have been other games on Facebook Live, but last Saturday, uh, a highly anticipated matchup between Loyola hosting Johns Hopkins University in lacrosse at Ridley was the first ever game, a lacrosse game put on Facebook live. And mm-hmm. while, while our show's on Facebook live and we may get 600 or 700 views by the time it's all over, that doesn't mean 600 people sat there and watched right. the entire bat around that, that lacrosse game had well over 200,000 views of it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a huge number, isn't it? I think for online, again, these are not simultaneous viewers. These are people that tune in and out. Yep. In the streaming environment, it's a high frequency but a lower total, you know, the mm-hmm. time that you spend doing it. There's no question, Stan, that we are going to see, whether it's here in this country or in Europe or somewhere, we're going to see more and more of these go to two places. Facebook Live, which through their, I think it's Facebook Watch or Stadium, whatever they are now calling that. Stadium, I think it's Am- called, yeah. Stadium and then Amazon Prime. Those are the two primary providers, I think, that you're going to see increasingly all of the leagues, whether they are major leagues or, or in this case, college universities. It makes sense for Loyola and Johns Hopkins to do that because the profile of the online user fits the lacrosse yeah. crowd, which is younger and affluent in those areas. So, And you can take it with you on the go. Um, I, let's go to games this summer. You and I stand and we'll just go out in the stands and we'll look at who people are consuming on their phones while the baseball game is going on. I think you're going to see increasing amounts of people watching something else, doing something else with their phone while they're, while they're at Camden Yard. What's fascinating about that, and you know my friend and co-host Gary Stein, who owns Studio 83, a video company, he's starting to look into the economics of this. You know, in the past, if you wanted to do – a high school basketball game or some, a game of the week or something, you still had to kind of bring in that truck to, yeah. you know, to feed the, the transmission through to get to, to people's TVs. That was normally a minimum of a twenty five to $30,000 cost. That cost now is a piece of equipment you can buy for $5,000. You own it. It seems that the economics of putting games on have changed now. Yeah, and, and Stan, those streaming boxes, devices are about the size of a small suitcase. Yeah. Um, so teams, schools, leagues are purchasing these things because you amortize that cost over five years. 
and then you have the ability now to essentially put I don't think there's any question that now every company, baseball team, football team, college, university, needs to think of themselves as a media company mm-hmm. and a distribution company because they already have the content. Yep. And they used to have to go to somebody for the distribution, yep. like you said, and now they have the ability to be the distributor themselves yeah. and to get in that business. So it's a, it's a we're game in the change. middle of it. Yeah, it's a game uh, changer. It's not as sophisticated as it's going to be in three to five years. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's no, there's no, nothing holding anybody back from doing it. All right. Marty Conway, always great insights. We'll talk to you down the road a little bit. All right. Okay. Have All a great right. show. Okay. Thank you. Marty Conway, professor of sports business at Georgetown university. And, uh, one of the smartest guys in any room.